Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Build a Healthier Life. I'm joined today by Chris Magwood. Uh, he is obsessed with helping uh, to reverse climate change by making carbon storing buildings that are also healthy, beautiful, efficient, and inspiring. Chris is currently the executive director of the Endeavor Center, a not-for-profit sustainable building school in Peterborough, Ontario. The school turns, runs a full-time certificate program, sustainable building and design, and hosts dozens of hands-on workshops annually. In 2019, he helped establish Builders for Climate Action, which will be rolling out a set of tools and policy options to help governments, designers, and builders reverse climate change with their buildings. Chris has authored seven books on sustainable building, including Essential Sustainable Home Design in 2017, and he is the co-editor of Sustainable Building Essentials series from New Society Publishers, and he contributed to a chapter of the book, The New Carbon Architecture. In 1998, he co-founded Camel's back construction and over eight years helped to design and or build more than 30 homes and commercial buildings, mostly using straw bales and often with renewable energy systems. Chris has completed a master's at Trent University. His thesis, Opportunities for Carbon Removal and Storage in Building Materials, which was published in the fall of 2019. Chris is an active speaker and workshop instructor in Canada and internationally. And Chris, welcome to Build a Healthier Life. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, what a storied career, uh, kind of starting with building uh, straw houses. Can you kind of just start how you got into this in the beginning and just and what motivated you to start looking at building healthier uh, homes uh, overall? Sure. Yeah. My, my start uh, as a builder was actually just to build a house for myself and my family. Um, so in the mid nineties, we started looking uh, to build a house for ourselves. And I was at that time very interested in energy efficiency and, and sort of um, efficient resource use, looking at, at trying to, you know, use local resources and, and then build efficient homes with them. And that, that kind of led to building the first permitted straw bale house in Ontario, um, you know, when we kind of looked at all the options and, and kind of did a lot of research, we realized that sort of met our goals most closely. And so those, those two things kind of using local resources and making really energy efficient homes was kind of the, 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 my start down the path, but pretty early on in, in my career as a, as a contractor, we got um, asked by three women who all had pretty extreme chemical sensitivity issues to help them build a house. So they'd already done their own research and decided that a, a straw bale house was a good place for them to start uh, because the material is really inert and the plasters that we put on those straw bale walls are also very inert. So they had already kind of researched that that would be an appropriate wall construction system for their home. And they asked us to help them kind of fill in the blanks, like what do we do for the rest of the house? And so I really started to research. They kind of gave me the list of, here's all the chemicals that we can't have in this building. And I started doing the research of, okay, what other materials do we put in this house that, that suit them? And it was absolutely stunning to me to start to learn, you know, what, what's in everything that we build with. And so even though I had sort of been attracted to straw bale building as sort of a, a healthy type of building, I wasn't necessarily paying attention to 
all the other materials in a, in a really kind of um, formal way, like, you know, actually finding out, well, what's in this and has anybody tested that? And is that, you know, shown to be okay for people or is there questions about that? Or is it a known carcinogen or, you know, there's just so many questions that come up. So from that point on, you know, that was such a, an eye-opening um, project to do to, to really have to vet every material that carefully and even just realizing how difficult it was at that time, especially to even get those ingredient lists. You know, now there's the Pharos project website and, you know, health product declarations and, you know, there's a whole bunch of things out there to help, but, you know, in 1999 <laughs> it was you know trying to phone companies and trying to talk to somebody and you'd get put through to their you know R&D department and you'd be say I like what's in this material and you know it was just such a it was such an eye-opening experience that it, it just you know it, it just became part of my building practice to be aware of that and to and to really try to make sure that I was choosing materials that that I could feel good knowing I was putting in somebody's home. So was it partially, I mean, those women came to you because they had a health crisis going on in their life, but were other people coming to you for the same type of thing or do they come to you from a sustainability and uh, just creative approach to uh, environmental needs? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, most of our clients prior, prior to that, that project, um, it was more of a, a sustainability efficiency, you know, local resources, um, renewable resources. It was more on that side of things. But but once once I kind of had that eye-opening experience around what's in all the other materials, because you know it was great. We were building these straw bale houses that that are really healthy as a wall system, but that a wall system isn't a house, you know. There's, there's so much more that goes into it. And even being aware that, you know, sometimes the caulking we were using to put down our sill plates or, you know, things right in the straw bale wall, we had this healthy wall, but then we were throwing materials at it that weren't healthy and then potentially filling the rest of the building with stuff that, that also wasn't healthy. Um, that, that just really changed my approach from then on. Yeah. I don't think we've, I mean, I've been in construction for 30 years. I mean, and, you know, until we really dwelled into it, you know, from kind of 16, 17 on, I don't think we really understood how much product is in there and, and that, you know, at, at the end, that industry is really not disclosing it and the governments haven't tested it and we're not really um, educated as to what it, it you know, um, or aware of what's really in that product that we're putting in, regardless of what it is. So... Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those things I think a lot of people feel like, well, you know, there must be some approvals process for building materials, you know, like the government's got to be involved here somehow in some way, but people are always surprised to find out that, you know, as a builder, the only two things I can't put in your house are lead and asbestos. And other than that, it's it's completely free game. Like, <laughs> you know, I could I could build you arsenic countertops and you know, you might sue me for that, but nobody at the building department is going to question that. No, you know, it's like, there really is absolutely no restrictions, no restrictions whatsoever. Um, and so, so I guess yeah, one of the things was how, how is your criteria for building that healthier home or sustainable home kind of changed over the years and, 
and like you know from the 19 late 1990s to today how has that criteria changed um well i feel like the you know there's been a lot of more work done on on kind of chemicals of concern so you know now today i can work with things like the the international living future institute has its red list of chemicals and they also have their declare program where you know companies declare what's in them and so you can actually like scan their list for red list free products um, you've got the cradle to cradle certification that has their health product kind of um, certification built in um, you have um, yeah like the the pharos project is is such a great um, resource from the healthy buildings network that that it's basically like a giant chemical database so if i see something in a product you know a lot of it is I'm a builder, not a chemist. So I see a chemical name that's, you know, 80 letters long. And it's like, I don't know what diethyl heptamine, you know, like, what is this? And so now I can go to Pharos, it's free. I can put in that chemical name. They'll show me like a whole breakdown of like, you know, a whole bunch of different categories. What's its risk level. They'll, they link to all the studies that I can do if I want to follow up on that. And so the, the difference for me now is there's just so much more in the way of accessible resources, you know, when, when I started was like, you know, trying to get a, just a simple SDS sheet for a product was tough. And then, you know, trying okay. to, use, yeah, you see an SDS sheet and you're like, okay, so it's telling me that this particular chemical is in this product. It doesn't tell me anything about that. It doesn't give me a risk level. It doesn't, you know, it's just, okay, it's in there. And so, you know, the, just the ability to now take that information and be able to do really good research uh, has, that's the big change for me in the last 20 years. So as you're talking to people, like what, so what, how do you discuss criteria of what they're looking for? Because everyone has different wants or desires. So how, how do you, how do you ever get to what the final criteria right. for that homeowner to build that house? Yeah, well, it's interesting because we we have at Endeavor, we, we've built this whole criteria matrix that we give to our clients where we ask them to sort of rate their their sort of level of sort of interest or, or concern about a whole bunch of different areas from, from, you know, healthy materials and indoor air quality to energy efficiency to carbon footprint to cost. And, and so people kind of like tell us on this scale you know, if somebody says, you know, I want a number four in terms of indoor environment quality, then it's like, okay, now we take this really seriously. Like we will vet every product and there will be no even chemicals of concern or question. Whereas if somebody picks a one, then, you know, we'll do our best to like not load the building with bad stuff, but we're not going to go out of our way. You know, they're not going to want us to spend more money or take more time to do something that they're not looking for. So we kind of get people to self-select their, their kind of their level of criteria that we then apply to the project. So do most people come to you, they're already aware of, of kind of why they want to do it or, uh, or, or you're helping them become more aware and making conscious from there. Some, sometimes people, sometimes people come to us because of the healthy materials thing. They've done some research and they see that, you know, we pay attention to that by and large, the healthy materials thing is still a bit of a surprise to most of our clients. They're like, what do you mean healthy materials? Like aren't all materials healthy? And 
you know, so there, there often is this sort of education. So even people coming to us with a, nobody comes to Endeavor that doesn't have some sort of environmental, you know, leanings. That's, that's why they would come to us. But it's surprising to me that, that in, in all of the concerns that people have about buildings and the environment, their own health typically isn't one of them. We sort of often have to do a bit of education when people see that on our criteria list and they're like, what do you mean by this? And, and then we kind of, you know, explain it a bit more. And, uh, and then, you know, some people it changes everything about how they want to do the project. And some people it's like, eh, I'm not too worried about that. So it, uh, it really varies by the client. Yeah, everybody has their own idea of what health is, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether you're, whatever the product they're selecting, whether, you know, it's the paint, it's the material, it's the lacquer, it's the cabinet, it's the flooring, yeah. they, they all are making their own decisions. So, I mean, I've been in construction for a long time and, and uh, you know, seen all the dumpsters in front of my facilities and, and uh, you know, and the amount of waste that, that gets generated in the process of building, regardless of the size of the house, small, medium, or large, it's still an enormous amount of waste and uh you know we, we run a recycle program here with our you know waste here but uh i saw a story i guess about one of the houses that you built that you had it down to and i'm not sure if i had the right number here but 18 pounds of of waste that was left over so how how do you i mean i know how much waste we generate when we're building something so how did you get down to 18 pounds well again it's that that was a that was um an intentional criteria so that's another one of the criteria that we give our clients it's like how concerned are you about waste? You know, if we do nothing about it, we'll probably make about 8,000 pounds. And if we take it really seriously, we could get it down to 18 or 20. So where do you want to be on that spectrum? And, and if the answer is we don't, we want to basically have zero waste, then that kind of informs every decision that we make around materials for the whole building. So, you know, if it's not recyclable, we're not ordering it. If it comes in excessive packaging, we're not ordering it. You know, so we have to actually know that about the products as we're choosing them. So it's not just, does it do the job? Is it in the price range? It's how does it come packaged? What do we do with our offcuts? You know, and, and also finding out things like lots of materials get sold as, oh, this is fully recyclable. And then you find out, but not in Peterborough or not wherever you happen to live. It's like, so also having to do that, that research to make sure that something that is theoretically recyclable, you know, can we actually do that here? Is there somebody that takes it back? Do we end up having to drive it to Toronto or, you know, there's, there's, it's just a whole, just like with the healthy materials, it's just a whole other level of research that you just start knocking things off the list. And if you have both health and waste in mind, it, it sort of narrows the options down even more because there, you know, it might be that you find one, this is fully recyclable, but it has three weird chemicals in it that we can't put in the building. So it can't be that choice. So it's, you know, it's just a, a whole bunch of research to make sure that you're, you're kind of hitting all those targets. So how did you keep recycling it down to that? So, I mean, did you re just recycle the cardboard or you did wood chips out of the excess materials? Like and then yeah, yeah. so we, you know, there's a, uh, a, um, a waste depot just outside of Peterborough that turns waste wood into uh, fuel pellets. And so, you know, they got all our lumber and fiberboard offcuts. Um, uh, we use a lot of materials like blown in insulation, like cellulose insulation, where they're kind of 
there are no offcuts. You just fill up a cavity until it's full and you know, there's no trimmings or, or waste that way. So yeah, it's just sort of like picking the products and, and sort of the strategies that, that allow you to, to sort of come away with no waste, you know, steel roofing where we can order the length exactly the right length for the building. And if there's like a, an offcut at the end of the building of one sheet that we know that we can take that to, to the local recycling depot. And, and so it's really just, you know, picking, picking the materials that, that we know um, aren't going to generate a lot of offcuts or that we know what to do with those instead of sending them to the dump. Right. And so, so gone through this career of building and, you know, worrying about the environment and, uh, thinking about recycling, and then you decide to go to Trent University to get a, to go get a master's and run a, a thesis on carbon capture. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, as part of the, the whole criteria approach that I was saying that we do with Endeavor, you know, in, I guess, probably around 2012, 2013, as, as the climate issue was really starting to everybody's kind of going, Oh, this is not just like one more thing. It's, it's a big thing. And it, it's kind of the thing we need to pay attention to. Then I really wanted to add that to our criteria. Like what's, what's the carbon footprint of the materials we're putting into this building and are we really contributing to climate change? And so as I started to research it on my own, there wasn't a whole lot of data out there and I just got kind of obsessed with finding that answer and, uh, and eventually, you know, the, the data set started to grow and I just took the opportunity to go back to school um, because I realized it was, that was a subject that was going to take more than just, you know, off the side of the desk research if I was really going to understand it. So um, I kind of took those couple of years to, to really dive in and, and, uh, and, and try to understand it really fully. And, Two, two big things came out of that for me. One is realizing that it's entirely feasible for especially residential scale buildings to not only not have a carbon footprint, but to actually store more carbon in the building than was emitted in making the building. So, you know, most of the time with environmental issues, we're, we're trying to achieve reductions, you know, you're trying to make the building 25% more energy efficient, or you're, you know, you're, you're sort of trying to drive these numbers down. And then I realized with the, with the, the carbon footprint piece was like, oh, we can, we can actually like completely flip this around entirely. And instead of making buildings, like in my study, the average house in Ontario has about 250 kilograms of, of, of greenhouse gas emissions per square meter of floor area. So if you add that up, it, it's a lot, like a, a house of 200 square meters becomes, you know, 40 tons of emissions just from making the materials. But that, you know, when I started looking at the projects that we do at Endeavor, I realized, oh, a whole bunch of our projects actually store more carbon in the building in materials like straw, like, uh, like wood, like cellulose insulation, like cork, like hemp, you know, there's a whole sort of slew of, of plant-based building materials out there. And if we are using enough of those, we're actually offsetting the emissions from things like steel roofing and windows and the stuff that, that is always going to have emissions associated with it, but we could get our kind of net footprint down below the zero line. And 
you know, that was really exciting to think that this whole industry has the opportunity to not just do a little bit less bad, but to literally turn around and, and become in the work that we already do become sort of a, a climate change solution where, where the, the carbon that we need to draw out of the atmosphere, we're not only not contributing to more emissions, we're actually pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and, and locking it up in buildings. And so that, that was such a, an exciting conclusion to come to. And that's I've pretty much been sort of banging that, that drum ever since, because it, it, uh, it's exciting to me to see, you know, I think climate change, it's hard for people because it's, it's this existential crisis that you often feel like, Anna, there's nothing I can do, you know, about it in a, in a meaningful way. And, and so as builders and designers, it seems like, oh, no, there really is something you could do that's really meaningful. And, uh, and so that's been the, the focus of, of what I've been working on in the last mm -hmm. few years. And so, I mean, not everybody, not everybody cares, but how does it, which is a challenge in, in this regard, but how do, so, you know, um, I've, I've seen some interviews with you in it and, and other people, um, but, you know, hempcrete is a, you know, is one of those carbon capture type items. And I know that you spoke about maybe using sunflower stocks as a, as a replacement because it's more local or accessible or, uh, but it has the same attributes. So, but how how do how does industry make that more efficient so that it's maybe not as labor as intensive as the way it is right now? Um, I think I think the industry will have no problem making that less labor intensive. Like if you think about all the materials that we already put into buildings, those are way more complicated processes than making something like hempcrete, right? Like making concrete involves quarrying limestone crushing it, burning it, crushing it again, you know, moving it over, putting it in trucks, adding gravel, adding water, shipping it somewhere and, and pouring it. It's like, well, if we can do that, hempcrete is a bunch of plant stock chips with a, a light lime based coating on it. You could put it in the same truck, <laughs> you know, the same kind of thing that carries my concrete to my site. You know, it would be very easy for there to be a hempcrete batching plant in Peterborough that, you know, I phone up and I say, I need 12 yards and they come and it comes down a chute. And now instead of me and my crew mixing it in a little mortar mixer and running it around in wheelbarrows, you know, it's just delivered or, you know, a plant that's making precast blocks of it or something like that. But there's certainly nothing on the technical side of of working with any of these materials that's, that's a heavy lift in terms of you know, the industry being able to figure it out, the building industry's figured out, you know, how to take oil and blow bubbles into it, <laughs> make foam insulation, you know, all of those things are, are much more complex than, than any of the plant-based material um, production sort of requirements. I think, you know, it just, it's basically a matter of, of will and incentives and people kind of taking the climate issue seriously enough to, you know, to, to make those changes, but um, the, the technical side is the least problematic. Mm -hmm. And do you see like, so I, I know that you were, I think a co-founder of uh, Builders for Climate uh, Action. Um, and so I, I guess kind of that idea of, of using uh, 
those type of materials uh, is a part of that, I would assume, in terms of getting out there, talking about it and, and dealing with industry and government. Is that is that correct? Yeah. 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 So we, we sort of work with designers and builders. We're about to put out a, um, uh, an online calculator tool later this spring so that, you know, a builder can really easily figure out the carbon footprint of, of the building they're designing and sort of be able to look at, well, what does it mean to swap out certain materials with other ones? Um, so we're hoping that helps. And we're working with uh, a bunch of municipal governments on coming up with incentive programs. And I think that's the kind of thing that will really help where, you know, if a builder, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to try a new material or do something that's going to lower the carbon footprint of your building, if there is some sort of financial incentive to do that so that, it, you know, it doesn't end up costing you to do it, or you actually even get a little bit of a reward for doing it. I think, you know, people definitely respond to, to that kind of program. Everybody likes a deal. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> they all want that, uh, Best Buy certificates or whatever it yeah. is. Um, so what? How does so? So how does that group? You know, where where do they all come from, and and what what are you doing within that organization to try and move that forward? And 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 uh, until I was, you know, kind of researching you, I hadn't heard about it. So so how how do we how how do we get the word out? I guess right. Um, well, we're just sort of, you know, the, the organization's only been in existence about a year now, so it's, it's pretty new. Um, mostly what we're doing now has kind of been a lot of behind the scenes work. So we're, we're undertaking two really big studies, one in the Toronto region and one for um, the federal government to kind of use our calculator to provide some baseline uh, understanding of what the carbon footprint of residential buildings is. You know, because right now, like, you know, we can show people what our buildings look like and we can run some examples. But, you know, for instance, the Toronto study, like we're going to be looking at over 100 buildings that have been built in the last two years and, and be able to say, like, OK, this is the, the actual scale of the problem and identify, you know, a bunch of the really key changes that would, you know, that would make a big impact in that. So those, as those studies come out later this year, like that's, that's, I hope when we start getting a bit more publicity and people start becoming more aware of the work and then the, the sort of membership side of Builders for Climate Action is also gonna uh, open up this summer. And so as people start joining us and using the tool and being able to see these studies, uh, you know, we're hoping that, that it starts to really uh, take hold. What's the one or two changes that from kind of that research that you did that, that you think can make the biggest impact in terms of that carbon footprint from the building industry? Um, well, from residential buildings, foundations and insulation are the two usually top the list of, of high carbon footprint. So, um, you know, if we can use less concrete and of that lesser amount of concrete, make it a sort of lower carbon footprint concrete, that's, that's probably the biggest intervention. Um, so that can be anything from don't make basements anymore, make your buildings above grade is sort of like the number one easiest way to lower that carbon footprint. Um, and then on the insulation side, um, definitely any of the plant-based insulation. So from something quite conventional like cellulose insulation, you know, on out to the sort of weirder things like, like hempcrete those make a really big difference, especially if they're replacing 
um, like petrochemical foam type insulations, which are way at the high end of the of the spectrum. So those those two changes make a, a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And and how do you think industry, you know, that the regular guy that builds two houses to the guys that build a thousand houses, um, you know, what do you think that, you know, their willingness to take that on is going to be? Do you think uh, just social pressure is going to help them or they're, they're going to move forward on their own? Yeah, I think, well, both probably, but certainly the, the people who are, are reaching out to Builders for Climate Action early on are, it's interesting. I, I feel like they're not necessarily like environmentalists or, or sort of like green builders, but they are people who are starting to realize like their, their own children's future is on the line here. And if they can do something meaningful to help that, then they're really motivated to do that. And um, I've been really surprised like from, from sort of small design build companies to some of the really big developers in Ontario, like there, there is a surprising willingness to move on the climate issue that I haven't seen in any of the other work I've done. Like it's taken energy efficiency 30 years to grab hold and, and we've moved still moving pretty slowly on that one. And I feel like the healthy materials thing, it's hard to even talk about. You kind of, you know, most people don't even want to go down that path, but, but I feel like the climate issue is one that, that sort of the average person is really starting to realize like, okay this is you know these warnings aren't this isn't just joking around like this is this is the future for my own kids and my grandkids and and you know it's time to do something about it and so I've been really really encouraged by uh, how many builders from sort of any kind of like range of the political or sort of environmental spectrum are are looking to to try to do something to to help on the climate front. Is it, I guess, overall, um, you know, uh, having focused mostly on building healthier homes, is that, it, you know, if we were building healthier homes, we're kind of, in a lot of ways, we're, we're impacting the environment just on its own because we're eliminating as many of those materials as best you can, because it's not all, we can't eliminate it all and, you know, not live in yurts uh, like they do in Peru. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're, you know, there are some fundamentals that, you know, you're still going to, still have materials in your house it's trying to figure out to eliminate them that helps the climate in its in its own yeah. and kind of moving the yeah and i definitely find that there's a there's there's a pretty great overlap between the things that are good for the climate good for the health of the occupant like those there's a there's they converge very closely like when i look at okay i'm trying to choose an insulation I can look at this, you know, foam insulation that's full of brominated flame retardants that are some of the worst and most persistent chemicals on the planet, or there's wood fiberboard insulation that's wood and a little bit of paraffin wax. They do the same job, you know, <laughs> one is great for the climate and really healthy. The other is terrible for the climate and terrible for my health. And, and that overlap just sort of happens over and over and over again, where, um, you know, in almost every case that I can think of, the better option for the climate is also the healthier option. So it's, it's sort of like you get a, a two for one <laughs> when you go down either path, you're kind of helping your, your way along the other side as well. Yeah, we're not sleeping outdoors. We're still sleeping inside structures. So it's just trying yeah. to figure out how to eliminate as much of that as possible. So you don't end up with 
toxic load and and all the other challenges mm -hmm. with it but also yeah. affecting the indoor air quality of it at the end of the day so i, I made a note yeah. here this, um and one of the things is it's uh people have to kind of become their own regulator to what is appropriate for them is that yeah that kind of your idea as well absolutely like there's there's nobody's helping you on on this front right now or or there's not there's not a whole lot you know if you want to take the that you the, the health issue seriously yeah you you do end up becoming your own researcher there there's not really um you know there are some of these programs out there now to help you but but you still have to find them and you still have to like read the information and interpret it and like you said sort of set your own kind of comfort level as to what you know what you're okay with and what you're not okay with. Yeah, and, and what, so, I mean, that's a big piece because it's not all there, no matter where any of those sites, Healthy Building Network, Barrows, you know, Living Future, they have the information, but they're not telling you, you have to make the decision from, from your own research on, the, on those sites to decide what's appropriate for you, right? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, a, a really easy, a really easy place to start is to just, like take that ILFI red list. If you can build a house without any of those red list chemicals, and like those are the ones, you know, they've identified that these are things that are bad for people. There's no question, like there's no scientific wiffle waffle on any of these. These things are bad for you. So if you can take that red list and avoid those, which is on its own shockingly hard to do because, you know, when, if you take out all the materials that have all that have any of those red list chemicals in them, your, your palate gets much smaller. Um, but, you know, to me, it's like, that's, that's one threshold is like, I just won't have any of the really dangerous stuff that everybody knows is dangerous. And then sort of the next level is, you know, if there are things that are questionable, if, if there are a bunch of studies that say this has caused cancer or this, you know, is a mutagen or whatever, you know, the impact happens to be, but it's not, there's no scientific consensus yet that's another level, like the sort of precautionary principle level where it's like, actually, you have to prove to me that this is not bad for me instead of having to prove that it is bad for me is sort of the, the next level up. And so, you know, in our criteria matrix and endeavor, it's sort of like, you don't care, you care enough to avoid the red list, or you care enough to kind of like avoid anything that is potentially harmful to you. And just just for clarity, because not everyone would know those abbreviations of ILFI. Yeah. Describe that again. Sorry, that's the uh, International Living Future Institute. Yeah. So, so yeah. Sometimes we get into our own little world and everyone thinks they know. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Just for clarity. So, you know, I normally ask people what they would tell themselves, uh, you know, their 25 year old self about how to make a you know, how you could live a healthier life from there, but you started that way by building a house. So that, you know, that's a tough question. So I guess what, what have you learned from that time that, you know, that, you know, if you, now you know what you know, but what, what could you apply to even making your health, your, your life even healthier, you know, starting going back to when you started building your house for your, for your family? Um, well, I think as, as a builder, it's funny that, you know, I was taking material health seriously fairly early on, but I wasn't necessarily taking my own safety on site seriously. So, you know, I look back at my 25 year old self and go, why weren't you wearing hearing protection and eye protection and 
like what were you doing hanging off the edge of that scaffolding instead of putting up one more lift and you know i feel like there's there's a lot that goes on on job sites especially you know job sites you know with predominantly young men where it's just like i'm indestructible you know this will never kill me um but you know one of the interesting things on a job site is if you if you look at the nsds sheet for wood like just plain wood wood dust is a known carcinogen it's the number one cause of nasal cancer in North America is people inhaling wood dust. And it's like, I was out there cutting, you know, skill sawing all the lumber for house after house after house without wearing breathing apparatus. Cause I wasn't just, wasn't thinking about that. So if, if I were to give my young self advice, it would be like, you're working with healthy materials, but you're doing it in a, in an unhealthy way. And um, you should smarten up and do that better. <laughs> Safety for youth is, uh, they, they don't really think about that way. Like, you know, regardless of what it is, they don't, you know, they think they're indestructible, like you said, but, you know, I mean, I go to these job sites and see, you know, the tradesmen, many of them still don't, you know, they're wearing masks in today's world, but, you know, they wouldn't have been wearing them previously, uh, um, you know, to protect themselves. And, you know, the only thing that did help protect them was maybe eliminating, you know, uh, the formaldehyde that was in the MDF that we used and, you know, tr you know, redoing some of that because there are strict standards in places like Australia that you're not even allowed to cut the MDF in a, a regular working site. It has to be within a separate tent. Um, so, yeah. you know, I think we're, we're still far behind that in terms of protecting the physical worker himself. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's funny. The first, the project I was telling you about in, in 99, when I was researching all the materials, the very first MSDS sheet I got my hands on was for a drywall mud. And I was pretty sure like, oh God, it's drywall mud. How bad could this be? And it had like, it had five ingredients, three of which are red list, you know, chemicals. And I was thinking, whoa, how much of that have I sanded? And, you know, with no mask on and like come home covered in it at the end of the day and had no idea that you know, there's a carcinogen and a mutagen in there that, that are like known to, to impact humans. And yet how many drywallers do that day in, day out? And, you know, and then you leave a bunch of that dust behind in the building for the homeowner. And yeah, I think we just, you know, I don't know, I don't know why it's hard to take that seriously, but it, it, um, it's pretty shocking when you start looking into it. Yeah. It's, it's certainly not on the, uh, the signage when you're about to pick it up at the big box store to tell you what what the problem with is it is and you know there's no msds sheet sitting there for the homeowner to review prior to them walking away with it so it, it we're, we're just not describing and informing you know homeowners that do a lot of work by themselves and even the trade themselves really doesn't doesn't even know uh, because they've never no one's ever told them educated them or shown them is, is probably yeah. the biggest challenge that we see and and we see it in our business just trying to educate a group so they actually do something correct and then um and then a new group will come in and you know they don't know anything and they'll just go back to the old toolbox and use whatever product that they use that might doesn't meet the needs of our home or our homeowner yeah. so it yeah. becomes a big challenge so yeah, it's tricky on a on a on a sort of healthy home job site where maybe your maybe your general contractor is really aware of this and really into it, but it has to trickle down to everybody because otherwise, the plumber whips out a tube of P 
PL 400 glue and, and, or, you know, something like that happened. It happens all the time. It's so, you know, it's everybody has to be on board if you're going to make it work because it, you can sort of like blow the, your sort of like healthy intentions. If even just one or two sub trades, you know, yeah. don't, don't pay attention to it. Understand. We've, we've had our trades remove product that they put the wrong product in and, Though I trust all my trades, we verify everything that they're doing and the products they have and trying to figure out better ways to make sure that it's just a visual when you're walking around that it's a visual event to know that they're using the right materials. So that that's, uh, you know, changes every day. Um, but we know that every tradesman is a little bit different and has a different perspective on, you know, what, what they believe in. And then, um, but if we don't educate them, then they'll, they'll never do it. So, yeah. Um, what's the, so what's the, what do you think the, the, the biggest concern from your perspective that people just might not be aware of? Like, so, um, just in terms of construction, you know, just the average person walking down the street and they, what, what would you tell them to, would be your biggest concern for them to start thinking about right away? Um, I do, I do think it is that, the sort of that, that indoor air quality of their building, you know, there's this thing that the US Environmental Protection Agency does every couple of years, it's the, their top 10 or 12 um, environmental uh, harms to American citizens. And indoor air quality has never been lower than number five on that list. So that means of all the things that happen to people in this culture, being inside a building is in the top five risky things you can do. And it's like, well, we're all in buildings all the time. And, you know, I just think we don't, we don't have any sense of how, how like wide the sort of scientific consensus that this is a problem is, and yet, you know, how little we've actually done about it collectively or individually to make sure that, that we're not kind of putting ourselves at that risk. Yeah, but industry government really hasn't tested for that, you know, at all, when we were dealing with uh, National Research Council is that they were only just going to begin testing what the indoor air quality of a house was during construction and then post-construction and then post-possession, um, you know, to see what it was even like. And so, um, you know, industry just isn't there. I mean, we, we've actually installed some indoor air quality monitors so that you can track, uh, you know, all the different pieces of VOC content, uh, humidity and and other items that kind of help you understand that. But, but the government, again, I mean, we, we all think the government's looking after us, but I don't really think that they've uh, met that standard for, for this type of thing. No, on, on this front, not at all. I, in, in our workshops, I always show people that the Ontario Building Code has sort of seven overarching objectives that it sort of declares at the front. Um, and so, you know, there's safety and, you know, the things you'd expect to be there, but, but uh, health is one of them. So there's this great statement that like, you know, being in a building should not, you know, be cause for uh, undue risk of illness due to indoor air quality is like, that's a guiding principle of the building code. There it is at the front. And there's literally not a single line of code in the thousands of pages that follow that back that up. Like if they just say, Building should be healthy, and then you know. But when they say buildings shouldn't fall down, that's backed up with like 
hundreds and hundreds of pages of what you need to use and how it needs to be fastened and how it needs to be tested and like, you know, and for fire safety, there's, you know, there's all these regulations that then back up those objectives. And on the, the health side, it's just like, they should be healthy and that's it. <laughs> and and we're, we won't, we won't actually follow that up with any, you know, any legislation, any requirements at all beyond that. So if you build it, it should be healthy. Is that kind of the mentality of it or? Well, yeah, it's, it just doesn't, you know, it's like great language and you really wish that it was followed up because it's saying the right thing, but it just, then there's nothing that, that gives it any teeth beyond that. Yeah. We've, you know, I, I guess from us, we just, and I don't know if this is your experience, but every, you know, I, I, I'm every time I learn something new or speak to someone different is that I realize that, you know, you know, the things that I used to think were probably okay for me and regardless of the aisle that I walked down, whether it was at a big box, you know, home retailer or my grocery store or my pharmacy, I always made the assumption that it was, was uh, safe for me. And I think the more, the more I learn and the more people I talk to, especially, you know, specialists like yourself and others in healthcare or whatever, is that that's not the case. And yeah, I think surprise. <laughs> the whole yeah. industry is no different. And I think it's, uh, you know, until um, people, you know, get educated, become aware, make conscious decisions and help the environment, um, you know, it's just going to continue. But it, it is, like you said, a big surprise. So yeah. that, um, it's not a surprise I like. Quite yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I do. You know, I sort of see it's interesting because, you know, Definitely, there's the on the on the food side. There's been this pretty strong movement to sort of organic food and more sort of transparency about the food side. But I, you know, I even have really close friends who who eat an all organic diet, but don't think twice about just painting their walls with whatever paint they happen to get at the paint store. And it's like, how do you like? Why is this one important to you? And you're concerned about like chemicals in your food, but you're not concerned about chemicals in your living air like it it feels like it should be those two things should be linked but I feel like there's this disconnect where the awareness of it on the food side has grown way faster than the awareness on the building side yeah I've always said um, for a few years is that the big box you know home retailers they should have you know we have the organic aisle in the grocery store is that we need the healthy aisle in the big box retailers so that you can actually yeah. go down and say okay that paint was good for me and that flooring was good for me and that carpet is you know uh good for me and that the ones in the other aisles i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna avoid those a little bit and i think it's uh um you know they're making some decisions you know being influenced by companies like the you know, healthy building network or whatever, but it's, it's a long way from being able to walk in and actually decide that that paint um, is, is going to be safe. And I know that one of the things you had done some research on paint to bring that up is, is uh, you know, there is a, a variety of options, but they're, you know, they're maybe not as healthy as we think they are. Uh, overall. Yeah, well, that, that was a big shock when, when I was doing that initial research project and it, it sort of continues to today that the whole no VOC paint the designation you see on paint cans that say no VOCs, that's a US Environmental Protection Agency uh, designation that was created to reduce smog in California. So a no VOC paint can be off-gassing a lot of VOCs that are bad for people, but as long as it's not off-gassing 
VOCs that cause low level smog, it can be called a no VOC paint. And all over the EP, the, the Environmental Protection Agency website, you'll see them declare this, like this is not a health, you know, a human health uh, designation. This is, this is about smog. But when you go to the paint store, you just see no VOC paint, that must be great. It's got a green sticker on it. And it says it has no VOCs, but it, it like th that act literally has nothing to do with you and your health. Is it the greenwashing? Is it the greenwashing green of of health? Uh, in, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've seen that on some, you know, as you're doing all this research for your your own sustainable and healthy buildings, you're you're seeing that as well, right? There is a lot of greenwashing yeah. out there. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of greenwashing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. So just, I guess, kind of finishing up, uh, Chris. Just, what's the one thing you would tell people from everything you've learned to build a healthier life? <laughs> um, find find people that you trust like who you feel you know whether it's a retailer a tradesperson a contractor if if you find somebody who sort of shares your values and you trust them that's the person to hire for the job you know it it, it it's not oh, the cheapest <laughs> contractor is not always the best choice especially if you have this stuff in mind. So either you're going to have to take on a whole bunch of research for yourself, which is a really daunting task. You know, I wouldn't, if I wasn't getting paid to do it. I wouldn't be doing it to the level that I, you know, that I do it for people. Um, but if you can find the people who have already done that research and kind of, you know, they have your interest in mind, that's who you want to work with. Like that's how you'll get a good, healthy result, I think. That's great advice. And um, so I, I guess uh, people can check you out and your business at uh, Endeavor Center and chrismagwood.ca, I think, and, uh, and read some of these great books that you've read. So uh, anywhere else that they can find you and out of there in the World Wide Web? Uh, yeah, buildersforclimateaction.org is where that, that group lives. And uh, yeah, endeavorcenter.org is the school. And yeah, I would, I would highly, you know, recommend looking at the, the Healthy Building Network and the Pharaohs Project is a great place to start um, if, you're, if you're concerned about these sorts of things. That's great. Chris, thanks for joining me and thank you for uh, taking your time to, to uh, join the podcast, Build a Healthier Life. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Just going to, sorry, just...